0: Hello, I'm Jim White and welcome to It's Friday, your arts and culture guide to the coming weekend. Coming up, can you make it as a solo artist after being in one of the biggest bands in the world?
1: world
0: The return of the most exciting board game in the history of cinema. The jungle, this is a whole new thing. Nobody
2: told us we had to do a whole new thing. Okay, something
0: went wrong, and we speak to the man behind the Inspector Rebus novels about his long lost masterpiece, West Wind. It's set uh, in an
3: alternate kind of 1988 1989 when America is retrenching, becoming isolationist, pulling its troops out of Europe. The Soviet Union is looking on at the situation, going, We can make some capital from this chaos.
0: It just seems to ring true of things that are happening right now. But first, it's billed as the last in the sequel trilogy, or non-ology, or whatever you like to call the beer moth franchise that Star Wars has become. The Rise of Skywalker is supposed to wrap up the loose ends of the world George Lucas first brought us in 1977.
4: It's a big, sprawling space saga of rebellion and romance. <laughs> Spectacle, light years ahead of its time.
0: I am C3P, human cyborg relations, and this is my counterpart, r 2 d 2 But as the film is released, fans may be left with more questions than they've answered, such as Has the Star Wars franchise run out of ideas, time, and point? Joining me to pick through that knotty question is Fionn Hargreaves, commissioning editor of Female magazine and our entertainment columnist Baz Bamigboy. Fionn, when are you going to see this Star Wars?
1: Um, I'm going on the 21st of December. So it's the first day I'm back home in Scotland and I'm going go with my dad and my sister because they're the first people I saw Star Wars with initially. So This is
0: a family Christmas a outing. very
1: family, real But
0: I assume you've seen it several times already.
2: I wish. No, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm seeing it imminently. They keep it well under wraps, they don't they? They do, and there have been no leaks as to what's going on. I mean, all pictures of various Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver and what have you and the odd trailer, but no kind of substantial plot points.
0: Now, when the last Star Wars movie came out, it created endless complaints from fans. What was the objection?
1: I think there was a couple of main things. I think um, the film as a whole was set up excellently at the start because you had the evil First Order who were tracking the Resistance and the Resistance were running out of fuel in their ship. So that would have made for an excellent start to a film. But... The issue was the plot just sort of meandered from there. So Finn, one of the heroes, he went on a mission to go and find a codebreaker um, on a casino planet with um, Rose, one of the other resistance fighters. And um, it just didn't really have much of a point and it didn't really sort of add into the rest of the plot as a whole. And to be honest, if they cut that out entirely, then they'd been all the better for it. So it sounds
0: as though the thing had run out of ideas long before. But, But but there were an awful lot of complaints as well from the hardcore that it had drifted away from its purpose and become way too
2: modern and PC, wasn't it? Yeah, there was that. And <laughs> I agree with what uh, Fionn just said, actually. But you know what? Halfway through the movie, I, I became very stirred by it. I don't know what it was. I don't know whether it was my age, perhaps. And I suddenly remembered seeing it for the first time 100 years ago, feeling you know, like a young kid. And I used to take my son when he was a, a wee lad. And I liked it, despite the objections. I went with it.
0: The objections became really fierce online, didn't they? I mean, poor old Daisy Ridley had to take herself off all social media.
1: Why? What's
0: the problem?
1: So, um, with with Daisy Ridley, I think um, that was before the release of The Last Jedi. um, That was in relation to her posting about gun control in America and that sort of thing. But, yeah, a lot of the other stars did um, receive quite a lot of trolling over it. So the character Rose, played by Kelly Marie Marie Tran, she was trolled horribly online by by people who didn't agree with her character or that's
0: because she's basically a woman in charge well, of No, basically isn't it <laughs> but
1: that's the great thing about these new films is that they've got really strong female characters in it you know you've got Rose who really sort of teaches Finn how to be brave. Finn,
2: it's too late don't do it no I won't let them win.
1: And you've got Laura Dern, um, famous for Big Little Lies, um, who plays fantastic um, Vice-Admiral Holdo, who helps to sort of temper Poe Dameron, who is sort of the hero resistance pilot, and um, helps sort of forge his um, way into becoming the resistance leader into the next film.
2: I mean, it's interesting that Fionn's talking about all the trolling because, of course, back in, the, back in the day, when the original Star Wars trilogy came out, there was no social media. But, of course, we'd all gather in the school playground outside the movie cinemas, and we'd argue and fight over what happened in that Star Wars movie we have just seen. But now it's become kind of horrible because it's all so personally directed at the stars and very unfair. And to your point about the female leads in the film, I think it's just that, you know, there's so many fanboys who think they own the genre and how dare a woman be the lead. Well, I love women being the lead. There's a woman in my life who's the lead, I
0: can <laughs> <laughs> th- th- So much so that there was an attempt, uh, a move amongst the fanboys to raise money to make the next movie themselves and do it properly. I think that all faded out. Thank but God. Interestingly, sorry, spoiler alert, but Ian McDermott, the Emperor, is back in this series. There is a great disturbance in the force. I have felt it. We have a new enemy. Does that suggest, Baz, that... They want to get back to that nostalgia. They want to bring back the characters to relocate it in the fan zone
2: of what Star Wars should be. I don't think it's that. I think they want to wrap up the storyline. So if it's yeah. wrapping up, it, does that this mean it's the last one then?
1: Well, hopefully. I think... I... <laughs> Hang <laughs> on, you're a fan, <laughs> and you're saying I, hopefully. I know, I, I love it, but I think all good things need to come to an end. I've been really impressed, to be honest, on the whole by these new films. I think um, Rogue One is just a fantastic war
0: Sir, we're detecting a massive object emerging from hyperspace. Sir, shall I begin targeting their fleet? Lord Vader will handle the fleet. Target to the base at Scarif. Single reactor ignition.
5: Yes, sir. You may fire when ready. <laughs> Commence
0: primary ignition. They develop the story, though, or are they just carbon copies each time of what's happened in the previous movies?
1: I think one of the big criticisms of The Force Awakens was it was basically a bit of a rehash of A New Hope, and you can sort of see that, but also I think what J.J. Abrams wanted to do was really firmly root these new sequels in the original trilogy, give something for the original fans to sort of look back and see, ah, yes, you know, that's great, and then also something, sort of a bit of a, a joining line for the new fans to sort of come in and be able to delve into the other their stories as well.
0: We shouldn't weep too much, should we, Baz? Because if this is the last movie, don't worry, Star Wars fans. There's a TV series Ewan McGregor has just signed up for. So what's going to happen? Is
2: it just going to carry on into eternity? Oh, God, I hope not. As Fiona was speaking just just now, I was thinking of all the Star Wars movies and I read a piece recently in Star Wars in Time magazine by Carrie Fisher's daughter, Billy Lord, and she was saying how her mother used to take her on the set when she was a little girl and couldn't understand what the hell it was about. And then when she grew up, she was about 20, and she got a little small role in the last uh, Star Wars movie and then suddenly understood what the magic was all about. And she talked about how her mother will appear in this last Star Wars movie. What, uh, What
4: are you doing there, 3PO? Taking one last look, sir,
0: at my friends.
2: Confronting fear, it's the destiny of a Jedi.
6: Your destiny.
2: Because they've gone through all the old footage and stitched together a performance. I think that's going to be so moving. Sorry to ignore your very question. Magic. But I'm just,
3: I'm the just,
1: magic.
2: I'm, I'm just, a, you know, this is the magic of the movies.
1: I think, well, that's the great thing about Star Wars. It's something that older generations can pass down to the younger. The Force will be with you. Always. It's all about family, it's about friendship, it's about hope. And I think there are these sort of universal themes that really sort of speak to everyone. And there's something for every age, and there you go. Right, right,
0: Fiona, I'm going to put you on the spot finally. Right? Last thought your favourite Star Wars film.
1: Mm. Oh, right. I'm going to say Empire Strikes Back. But I'd say close second is Rogue One. I think that's just a fantastic film.
2: And Baz? The first one because you could never repeat the thrill and excitement of seeing that first movie. Baz and Fionn, thank you so much for joining us. Best known for
0: his brooding Edinburgh detective, Inspector Rebus, Ian Rankin is no stranger to twisting tales and murky deeds. In fact... After 23 novels featuring his famous detective that have sold 28 million copies around the world, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Rankin had mastered the art of the gripping crime novel. But with his return to a book he wrote 30 years ago that doesn't feature his finest invention, Rebus, is he on the search for a new twist? This book first came out in 1990. Why why have you decided to kind of revisit it and republish it?
3: Um... Mostly because somebody on Twitter said to me they'd read it and they thought it was better than I thought it was because when it was first published, I had no great love for the book. It had gone through various permutations. Editors and agents had made me change things. It had taken several years to actually find a publisher. By then, I was working on my next Rebus novel. Um, It was disappeared and vanished pretty much You know, a couple of weeks later, um, it was reviewed only a couple of times, sold very few copies. So um, I'd not allowed it to be reissued since. Um, And then this person on Twitter said, take a look at it. And I just happened to have a copy. So I took a look at it Um, and I was intrigued by it. It had been so long since I wrote it that I read it almost as though it had been written by another person. And I was gripped by the story. Um, And I thought the premise of it was really interesting because it's set. in an alternate, kind of 1988, 1989, when America is retrenching, become an isolationist, pulling its troops out of Europe. The Soviet Union is looking on at the situation, going, we can make some capital from this chaos. People are paranoid because they're all under surveillance from um,
0: uh, spy satellites. It just seemed to ring true of things that are happening right now. Um, looking back like that, um, a really interesting experience. Uh, how have you changed as a a writer in those thirty years?
3: Oh Lord! Well, I luckily back then I used to keep a diary. I had a very detailed page a day diary, so I was able to go back and look at the Ian uh, who was around at that time, and I was I was. Um... Uh, gauche, naive. I was desperately trying to get published. I didn't know what kind of book would get me published. I had tried a a literary novel. I tried a crime novel. I tried a spy novel with no great success. Now it was going to turn to an international conspiracy thriller. Um, I was scrabbling around looking for an identity. Um, And I was working full time, living in a little flat in Tottenham in London, yeah, newly married, um, no kids. So I was a very different individual and, and and just full of kind of frustration that I wasn't making it as a writer and it was the really the only thing that I, I wanted to do in life. Um, and of course, I just stuck at it. I stuck at it with the backing of my wife and friends and the occasional agent or publisher or editor or bookseller who would tell me they liked my stuff. Um,
0: and I just gritted my teeth and got on with it. Uh, Rebus, you'd already published the Rebus book, hadn't you, a couple of years before. Was he kind of lurking on your shoulder uh, at that time when you were writing this? Was his, was his voice in your ear, or, or had he not really formed into shape by then?
3: I think I was just starting out to write the second Rebus book book. Um, When I wrote the first one, I thought of it as a one-off. I thought I didn't know that people could... I wasn't a great reader of crime fiction. I didn't realise you could write a series with the same character. Um, And so that one book, in fact the first draft of the first Rebus novel He's Shot and Killed at the End Spoiler alert. Uh, And then the second draft, I decided he would be wounded but not die, which was useful. And all that happened was an editor eventually said to me, I like that character. Why don't you bring him back again and do more with him? Um, So by the time I was writing and editing and tweaking Westwind, I was already starting work on the second Rebus novel. I was also um, tweaking the spy novel Watchmen that would come out in 1988-89. Um, so there were I had several projects on the go, and maybe that's why I wasn't quite as focused on West Wind as,
0: as I could have been. That, that's amazing. So Rebus, in another a parallel universe, a sliding doors moment, Rebus could have been shot at the end of his first book. A whole generation of Scottish actors would be out of work as a result of that. I mean, it, you know, well, yeah, it, it's just it's, extraordinary it's to think he might never have been in, the, the character he is now.
3: Well, the the, the, the the other thing that happened at roughly the same time was that there was some TV interest in that first Rebus novel. And the TV interest came from Leslie Grantham, who at that time was a big success playing Dirty Den and EastEnders. And he wanted to take the plots of the first Rebus novel and move it to London... And Leslie Grantham would play a detective called Rebus, a London detective called Rebus, investigating that story. And if that had happened, that might well have been the end of the series of books, because I would feel, well, he's now been transplanted as a, as a Londoner, as a London detective, and it no longer belongs to me.
0: Does he still live in your life? Ian, is he still there in your thoughts? Oh, he's still I'm I,
3: I'm 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 working on the next one right now. I've only just started the next one, so there's at least one more left in him. Um there's a little bit of life left in the old dog yet. Um and uh I mean he lives more or less in real time, so there are things he doesn't do now that he could do thirty years ago when I started writing these books. He's he's got um uh, health problems, he's retired. But I've enjoyed that. I've enjoyed that walking that path with him because it keeps it fresh and it keeps it keeps me on my toes. I can't get lazy because between books, there have been changes in his life. And I've got to reflect those changes when I sit down
0: to write the next one. Uh, one of the things about him is he's, he's a phobic towards kind of technology, social media. You're, you're really good on Twitter. Anyone should be following you because you're 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 great fun and, uh, and joy. But how much of you is in him? You're obviously completely different people. But how much of you is in him?
3: there are little bits and pieces i mean his taste in music is probably mine we grew up in the same part of scotland um he's older than me he left school at 15 i stuck around and eventually went to university we've got similar taste in music he lives in the street i was living on when i invented him uh, but i've moved around quite a lot and he hasn't um his way of looking at the world though is not my way of looking at the world he's kind of World weary. So, I mean, he would if we met in, in the Oxford Bar, which is a real pub where we both drink. Um, I think he would see me as being a wishy washy liberal.
0: <laughs> you said that you were, you know, desperate when you were when West Wing came out. You were desperate to find um, a place and and so on. You can never imagine. You can never have imagined back then that Rebus would become what he is.
3: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, it was. I think it was Rebus novel number seven or eight before I got any success and I mean these days I doubt any publisher would keep you on that long when you weren't making the money but I just you know my publishers just hung on to me because they liked the books they liked the character and they believed that eventually I might break through these days I think you've got to you've got to come <coughs> to success a lot quicker in the publishing industry and I, I don't know I mean I was just thankful it eventually happened when it did happen and and it was a lovely surprise um And, you know, fans, I mean, for fans, he's real. He's he I mean, they come to Edinburgh looking for him, walking in his footsteps, having a drink in the bar where he drinks, um, going and looking at his apartment block and going and looking at the police stations where he's worked. And I I love that. I love the fact that for for them, he really is real. Rebus can't go on forever. I mean, he can't be investigating crimes in his 70s and 80s, I wouldn't have thought. So. I'm always I'm always really happy when I get an idea for a book, I can uh, and I can see a way that a guy of his age can be involved in a, in a in a detective style story.
0: Have you ever been on the Rebus tour that goes around Edinburgh? I've been on it. Have you ever, have you ever actually <laughs> put you pulled your hat down and gone on it surreptitiously? Years and years ago
3: I did go on a Rebus tour. It was a special one that was done for charity and it was people that had bid the most money went on it and then halfway through the tour suddenly I appeared from the shadows. And, and walked the rest of the tour with them. I did once for charity take people on a rebus walking tour of Edinburgh. And at the end, we were in the Oxford bar and a woman came up to me who'd been on the tour and she said, oh, you know, you're so much, you're so funny uh, when you're speaking to us and your books aren't funny at all, especially <laughs> your science, especially your science fiction books. And I said, my science fiction books. And she was mistaking me the whole way around for Ian Banks, um, another novelist. And I thought, well, I, I, but did, did you realise I was talking about the Inspector Rebus novels? Oh, no, not really. No.
0: So, you know, um, you can't please everybody all the time. Is there anything else up your sleeve, you know, a lost novel to compare with West Wind that were, <laughs> did you, you found in a bottom drawer that you could publish? The only thing that I've
3: found, because we moved house uh, earlier this year and I went through everything because a lot of stuff was getting thrown away and luckily the National Library of Scotland said they would take my archive of manuscripts. And I did find... I found a couple of big projects. One was my first novel, which was a comedy set in a Highland hotel, a Scottish Highland hotel. Um, I doubt that it will ever be publishable or published, not in my lifetime. Another thing I found was a big TV project that I had no memory of working on, which was a kind of cop, um, under, undercover cop in Scotland uh, working uh, as part of a drugs gang. And I, I've got no memory. It was written in the early 90s, and I've got no memory of it whatsoever. I mean, maybe if I dusted that off, it would be publishable as a thriller. Uh, I don't know. But no, there's not much left in the, in the bottom drawer, I'm afraid. Not much. I've just got to start writing another new book.
0: <laughs> and and are, you? are you? Are you there at your computer yeah, as we speak?
3: I, uh, I, you're, you're holding me back. Uh, I, I am. Uh, I, I started working it about two weeks ago, so I've got about two weeks of writing under my belt. I'm trying to get as much of it done before Christmas as I can, then I'll take a break. Um, and hopefully, um, if all goes well, it will be published, I would guess, in October next year.
0: Would it be possible for you to um, read a little paragraph from West Wind?
3: The vibration in the shuttle intensified still further, becoming more than a roller coaster. A roller coaster had once terrified him as a child, and he had determined never to be afraid of anything again in his whole life. A decision that was ending here and now with the most complete terror he had ever felt. Through the glass, he caught a quick glimpse of the ground crew, Already the fire engines were racing forwards, but too late. Sparks flew from the seared undercarriage, and a final all encompassing ball of flame sent him veering towards pale darkness. But then suddenly Adams was at his side, his head bloodied, and Adams' hands slid around his throat, growing tight, and all the time he was shouting, You son of a bitch, you son of a bitch, I won't forget, not ever. The burial's what matters. Coffin's got to be buried. It was also unnecessary, Dreyfus thought. We're dying anyway. Why don't you let me die in peace? The tarmac below was churning like the sea, as unsteady as a fairground ride. Adam's hands were still there, blood pounded in Dreyfus's ears, tortured metal, the whine of the uncontrollable engines. How could it have happened? Total malfunction, absolute and total, just as they were starting the descent. How could it have happened? It was typical of his life that he should die with a question unanswered in his mind.
0: That was the crime writer Ian Rankin, whose latest novel, a reprint of Westwind, is available in all good bookstores. Now it's time for Hits and Misses, where our critics ignore the nonsense and tell us what they really think about the week's new releases. And first up, the Daily Mail's film critic, Mr Brian Viner. Brian, what have you been watching?
4: Well, I've seen a film called Jumanji The Next Level. Now, you might remember, Jim, or maybe you won't, that 2017 there was Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle.
0: Where's the jungle? This is a whole new thing! Nobody told us we had to do a whole new thing!
1: Okay, something went wrong.
4: That was a a reboot of a Robin Williams film from 1995.
0: 26 years ago, we started playing a little game. We're all going to sit down, we're going to finish it.
4: I, like many people, went to it with pretty low expectations, and actually it was funny, it was energetic, it had great rapport between the actors, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Kevin Hart and... Yeah, they they, they, they were on
0: they were on Graham Norton promoting this this oh, week, and, and they look
4: like a real double act. Yeah, they I mean, are. They are yeah, funny, yeah, They yeah. bounce
0: off each other they really are, well.
4: They're very and like a lot of good double acts. You know, they're very different physically, aren't they? And they play on that in this in this film. So this is a sequel to the to the one that came out a couple of so years ago. So what's it about
0: then? Because I so, I never
4: quite grasped that they're, they're yeah. playing
0: avatars of something or other. Or I mean, I'm, I,
4: I am personally not a, a huge video game fan. So it was a bit of a learning curve for me to see this film. Humanity is a video game, and what Happens is that by some the sort of thing that only happens in the movies, like in Big and Groundhog Day, all those all those kind of whimsical films, something crazy happens and they get sucked into the video game. I think we got sucked into Jumanji and we become the
1: avatars we chose.
2: Don't look at it. No! I'm an overweight middle-aged man. Oh. I don't have my Claritin, and all I see around here is Paula. Well, I don't have a top two feet of my body.
4: In the original film, they were kind of teenagers, young, young, youngish teenagers, who got sucked into this video game, and then they all are represented by characters. So you have the Jack Black character playing basically a sort of a teenage girl and doing it brilliantly. It was very funny. So it's a sort of body swap thing, basically. And, and so who's uh,
0: inside the rock then?
4: So this time we've uh, we've moved on a little bit and so they are now college students. So it's the same kids from last time, but they're now college students. I
0: came back and things actually got worse. Look at
1: this. One, two... We have some issues
2: here. The game is busted. Listen up now. This is a dangerous place. You've got to have eyes in the back of your head. What in the Sam
4: Hill just happening? And this time, Danny DeVito plays the kind of grumpy old granddad of one of the of one of the characters. Uh, Come on, I'm coming. Grandpa Eddie, morning. Did
0: you guys see Spencer?
4: And Danny Glover, so two great old actors, is also in it as his old business partner with whom he's fallen out. And they also get sucked into the video game. So The Rock is Danny DeVito, or at least Danny DeVito has become The Rock. Very similar. So can you imagine that? Yeah, Very yeah. similar. I should physics. think Danny DeVito probably comes up to The Rock's, not even his knee. <laughs> That's funny. But also the change in the course of this film, it's quite hard to explain, really, but the body swapping is sort of switches around. So you think, you know, who each one is, and then they they are somebody else and it basically so they're sucked into a video game and they've got to find you know it's all the usual kind of nonsense they've got to find a jewel and they've to defeat the baddie and they've got to escape marauding ostriches and marauding mandrills which happens to you and I every week obviously and so it's all that kind of stuff but it's quite funny it's not as good as the first one partly because it's not as unexpected we sort of know what's coming the comedy at times feels a little bit forced Jack Black is is always very funny hit or miss hit or miss um, it's a hit a modest hit
0: Uh, and what else have you uh, been watching
4: well i saw a a very charming documentary about the making of fiddler on the roof which i think gets a limited release i think it's in a lot of cinemas this week this coming weekend but perhaps only on friday and saturday what is that
0: that makes it speak in so many languages and everybody thinks it's
2: about them
1: On a gut level, we all are connected to this. I don't think there's any other show that has done that for more people.
2: As long as humankind continues to have struggles, Fiddler on the Roof will be there.
4: You mean the original, the original, original uh, movie? It's called Fiddler, Miracle of Miracles. It's it's about how the show, which was first staged in 1964, how that came about, and it was some stories by a Jewish-Russian writer in the, the turn of the 20th century... Shalom Aleichem. And his stories were seized upon by this very clever lyricist, very clever composer, a writer, and they put it all together. But they, they were still thinking, well, this is not really a show until they got the choreographer and director Jerome Robbins, who just made West Side Story. And he put this thing together and it became this massive hit. Nobody expected it to be a hit. But Tevye the Miltman, who we all remember from the film, uh, was played on stage by Zero Mostel. And, you know, it became a huge hit. It was the longest running uh, musical on Broadway. And then and they made. The movie, and in fact, they got a director in called Norman Jewison, and he shocked the United Artists who who, who backed the film by telling them that he, wa- he wasn't actually Jewish. He, they said, "What your name is Jewison, Norman Jewison, and you're not." <laughs> he said, "I'm sorry, but I'm not." But anyway, he and then he shocked them again by saying he didn't want Zero Mostel to play Tevye. He wanted this unknown then then unknown guy called topple an Israeli actor, to play it. And of course, he was he was completely brilliant, and the and the musical was one of the greatest of all time. <laughs> Who on earth do they talk to? Because this is a long time ago. Presumably, none of these people
0: who were involved are still around, are he, they? The,
4: the director who I spoke to on the phone, actually, and he he's a, he's a, an American, one of whose parents was a, is a Holocaust survivor. So he had a, a, a real kind of emotional investment in this, because of course the background to Fiddler on the Roof is is pogroms and anti-Semitic repression and all that. So he delved into the archives. Basically, one of the one of the original guys is still alive, and that's Sheldon Harnick, who wrote the lyrics and of course the lyrics are wonderful we all know you know miracle of miracles and if i were a rich man and all that he did that he's still alive he's a very old man he's about 95 most of the others have have now gone but he he delved into the archive and found some very good interviews with all of them actually so he strings it together it kind of looks as though they're all still with us. Topple is very much still with us. He's in his 80s, but looks great. He pops up, and, and one lovely story, he talks about Topple, the sequence where he sings If I Were a Rich Man, one of the most famous sequences in screen musical history. Apparently he had raging toothache, and so when he's kind of screaming and shouting at God, it's actually his teeth <laughs> are kind of killing him, and he couldn't get dental treatment. Method acting, <laughs> this yeah, is method acting. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I think
2: when things are too quiet up there... You say to yourself, let's see, what kind of mischief can I play on my friend Tevye?
4: So, um, hit or miss, Brian? Oh, very much a hit, a hit.
0: (laughs) Thanks very much indeed, Brian Viner, the Daily Mail's film critic. (laughs) And I'm joined now by Adrian Thrills, the Daily Mail's music critic, to tell us what we should be listening to over the next week. Adrian, what, what's new? What have you been listening to?
6: So I don't know if we should all be listening to it, but I've been <laughs> uh, doing it so other people don't have to. I've been listening to the solo efforts from two former members of One Direction. Baby,
2: like
6: That's doing. been my main entertainment this week, musically.
0: This is Harry Styles and Liam Payne. These are guys (laughs) who have made such huge success with One Direction. Have they gone off in another direction, or is it One Direction rebooted?
6: Well, I think Harry most certainly has. I think Harry's second solo record, or HS2, as we could call it, is certainly a million miles away from the likes of Midnight Memories and the other kind of big One Direction hits from the the start of the decade. He... uh, He's been spending a lot of time in LA, hanging out with Stevie Nicks, his his new mentor, Stevie Nicks, the Fleetwood Mac singer, who who describes Harry as the son I never had. Fine Line, which is his second solo record. It has a real kind of West Coast almost. Uh, it's like hippie-ish feel in places. It's almost like he's he's been let loose on his parents' record collection. I think with uh, with no filter.
0: Mine,
2: oh,
6: and he skips between. I think think they're more than pastiches, but they're they're kind of certainly songs that um, wear their influences on their sleeve. He he owes a lot to Joni Mitchell, Crosby Stills, Nash and Young. And there's one song in particular, a six-minute epic called She, where he veers off into kind of prog rock territory. It's kind of like a Pink Floyd, obviously more British influence here, kind of Pink Floyd, even shades of Roxy Music and every dream home heartache. It's certainly one that might confuse a few of the old One Directioners when they uh, kind of listen to Harry's new hippie incarnation. It's it's a very interesting record and I think he does it with, with a lot of affection. He's got a very strong voice and the songs are very well crafted and it, it holds together really well as an album. If you can if you can brace yourself for the sound of Harry Styles' former pop pinup playing a dulcimer, a kind of very obscure string instrument, which he, he plays on one of the tracks called Canyon Moon. He's kind of given an idea of the kind of terrain that he's he's venturing into.
0: Now, we know it's going to be a massive seller because it's Harry Styles. He's now one of the biggest all-round stars, actor and everything else in, yeah, in America. He was, great and in, in,
6: he was in Dunkirk, wasn't he? And, yeah. He's, he's making uh, making waves as a, as a model as well, but, and he's uh, just done yeah, Saturday
0: Night Live, didn't he? I think he presented that. I think he did, yeah. Okay, so he, okay. So it's going to sell. It's going to sell, Adrian. it's, but, sell but, in its but, but in Adrian Thrill's opinion, is this a hit or a miss?
6: I have to say, it's a hit.
0: And what about Liam Payne then? Is he Liam,
6: yeah. He certainly hasn't experimented or ventured forth into new musical terrain quite the way that his former bandmate did, which is slightly surprising, really, because Liam, of all the band members of One Direction, the people in the band, he, he really developed as a, as a songwriter, and you might have expected that his first solo record might, might be a bit more adventurous, but sadly, it, again, he's a very strong singer, really nice poppy voice, but the material, I must say, is rather formulaic and touches on all the typical chart-pop touchstones, there's a bit of Latin there, there's dance, this kind of Pharrell style R&B. His vocals had the kind of slightly yearning tone of the Canadian singer Drake, but I just found it all a bit ho-hum, really.
4: But you made me want to let it all go I was always gonna live fast Die young, slow down When you came along, yeah Burn bright, burn out But now you made me want to live forever All that running, gonna give it up For you, nothing ever gave me
6: coming off the back of listening to Harry's bold venture into into kind of fresh terrain. It's not a bad record. There's a few collaborations. I like his duet with Rita Ora For You, the song from the Fifty Shades Freed soundtrack. (laughs) another one of the problems with the the record. It's his first studio album, but eight of the tracks have already been released as as singles, so it always has a feel. If you kind of prepare yourself for buying what's essentially a greatest hits album, then that is kind of what you're getting here.
0: So, hit or miss, Adrian?
6: Well, it's not the worst record I've heard this year, but I think in context, I'm afraid, this one just fails to hit the mark.
0: The two of them are at, hard at work coming up with albums and so on. Do you think there's a kind of internal competition with One Direction? Are we now seeing them each trying to outdo the other?
6: I think there's always that unwritten, friendly rivalry. And, of course, Zayn, he, he left the band and put his, his record out um, very, very quickly. And I so but I don't think there's, there's none of the... One thing you must could say about the One Direction is there's none of the bad blood that you've got with... Even, you know, Jerry's departure from the Spice Girls was was quite acrimonious. And, of course, Robbie's from Take That. I remember seeing Robbie shortly after he left Take That. He used to to moat around the stage on a motorised toilet seat singing a kind of thrash metal version of Back For Good, which I think uh, made his feelings about his... (laughs) former fellow bandmates, pretty clear. That, that was a pretty bitter split. But this one, you know, they're officially only on hiatus, so I wouldn't be surprised. and They have even hinted that maybe a couple of years down the line they, there might be a reunion. Whether it's a kind of chart-pop reunion or if they're going to go off on kind of Harry's hippie odyssey, it remains to be seen. And you know, I kind of tend to think it's probably going to be a slightly tamer version than, uh, than the kind of stuff that Harry's doing at the moment.
0: Hey, Jed thanks so much for joining us. Now the last of this week's hits and misses. This time, what's coming up on TV with Claudia Connell, the Daily Mail's television critic. Um, Claudia, what should we be watching this week? Well,
7: on Saturday, it's the Strictly Come Dancing final. Oh! So there's three in the final. There's normally four, but they're they're down to three because I don't know if you remember uh, Will Bailey, who was a Paralympian, he had to pull out halfway through with an injury. So we have Emma Barton, she's an actress from EastEnders. There's Kareem Zerul, a children's TV presenter. And the favourite is uh, Kelvin Fletcher. He's a a former soap star, used to be in Emmerdale. It's quite interesting that he's expected to win because he was never meant to be in the programme. He was drafted in at the last minute because uh, another contestant had to pull out. So when they have these big realities, Shows like Strictly Like I'm a Celeb, they always have a couple on the subs bench. And
0: <laughs> are, are they good? Are they, I mean, presumably by now, they're pretty good dancers, are they? There's no,
7: I, I think the two guys are good. I would say that Emma Barton, the, the only woman in it, is perfectly okay, but she's not brilliant. She's in it because she's partnered by Anton de and everybody loves him. And he's the only dancer now who's been in it from the beginning and he's never won. So there's. Oh, there is
0: t- so we're now all rooting for Anton. There's a
7: chance that he could win because people might vote for him, because I would say he must be coming towards the end of his Strictly time, because he's, you know, he's, he's getting on a bit for a dancer. I hope people don't vote for him, because it's it's not about the professional dancer, it's about the celebrity.
0: Yeah, you say celebrity. I, I, you, well, yeah. you've, you've worked very hard to make sure you didn't say Emma Bunton, who might have been quite interesting. Oh, she wasn't, if it she was. She did do oh, it. Oh, Emma she's Bunton, done it in the past. Yeah. Do, You know, does it matter the fact that literally I had heard of none of those three? Emma
7: Year this happens, they announce the lineup, and everybody on sort of social media says, "Oh my god, worst lineup ever!" I don't know who any of these people are. And then, as the show goes on, it, it tends to not really matter that much that they're not huge stars. And whenever they've had quite big names, those those names tend to go out quite early on. Like people like Jerry Hall was a good signing, and I think she was out in the second week, as I remember. Um,
0: I'm a celeb finished last week, and yeah. it kind of petered out because yeah, our like- interest really dissipates as the as the numbers get smaller. Is that the same with Strictly? No. Are we really keen to see people falling over in the early stages, or do we stick with it uh, as it gets better?
7: Strictly is kind of held steady this year. It's I think it's it's averaged about ten million per episode, which is is very good considering it's been going for about sixteen years now. And the, the final will probably get about twelve million.
0: So hit or miss? It'll, it'll
7: be a hit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, and what else is, is coming well, uh, out this weekend?
7: Well, so on on Tuesday is the finale of Gold Digger.
2: Mum, I'm sorry, but he's not a good man. There I are so to many things. i say this one there.
7: last time, Patrick. Do not make. A lot of people might have already seen this because the BBC uploaded the whole thing to iPlayer, so some people have already seen it. But if you're watching it in, in sort of real time, then the final is on Tuesday. There's been a sort of a glut of dramas recently that start off really well and the ending is just a bit... Ugh. And I, I don't want to give anything away, but I'm <laughs> I think
2: you have. That well, sounds as though it's, it's going to be a bit... Ugh.
7: Yeah, I think an awful lot of people are going to be watching it and get it gets to the final scenes and they're going to be thinking... Oh, for God's sake. It's just, I don't know, you just end up feeling a little bit cheated when you've stuck with a show and it's been really good. And then it's almost like they hadn't worked out what they were going to do at the end when they started filming the first episode. And,
0: and you said that it was always already available on yeah. iPlayer. And how's that affected the viewing figures? Do you know?
7: I don't know how they calculate that. I mean, the BBC are starting to do that more and more with the, with the sort of streaming, because I guess they have to, because people are now used to, to Netflix. And for a lot of people, especially a younger audience, it feels strange to have to wait a week for the next episode. People like to binge watch things now.
0: You've got to be very careful in case people haven't seen this. Spoiler alerts all round. It's called Gold Digger. Do we come to any conclusion as to whether or not gold and digging is involved?
7: The very first episode opens with their wedding day. So Julia the 60 year old about to marry the boyfriend half her age and and then you get flashback and so the final episode is her deciding whether or not she's going to marry him. I would say that the gold digger question is never really properly answered
0: and the other thing of course that happens with dramas is they go on and on and on and on and on is there a second series of this do you think
7: yeah they've they've left a sort of a a crack in the door so there could well be a second series of this yeah you don't sound
0: hugely enthusiastic hit or miss claudia you
7: know what i when i started off watching it, it it was a hit but i'm afraid the final episode makes it a miss for me
0: thanks so much claudia Well, now you know what's worth seeing and really what isn't worth getting out of bed for. My thanks to Brian, Adrian, Claudia, Baz and Fionn. Let's find out what they're gossiping about on the other side of the Atlantic and who better to tell us than the male's own Jackie Stephen in New York. Well, the Golden Globes nominations have revealed a high number of Britons. Uh, it's almost like Colin Welland all those years ago It's <laughs> coming true. The Brits are coming. Jackie, there are an Hello awful here. lot of Brits, aren't there?
5: There are so many this year. The Brits are very much in comedy and drama this year. It's very interesting. Uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Andrew Scott, the hot priest from the show Fleabag, are there. You know that feeling when a guy
6: you like sends you a text at two o'clock on a Tuesday night asking if he can come and find to you. And then you open the door to him like you always almost forgotten he's coming over.
5: Oh! Hi. The series is up for it as well. I'm absolutely convinced that she will clean up like she did at the Emmys. Helen Mirren is there. I think Helen stands quite as a good chance. I don't think Helen, Helen the bottom Cart is up for the crown. You
6: cannot flinch. It's only fallen
7: apart if we say it has. That's the thing about the monarchy.
5: We paper over the cracks. I don't she'll win it. Olivia Colman might. Uh, but Helena Bonham Carter, I would love to see win it because she's such a fabulous actress. And I also have to tell you my story about Helena Bonham Carter. Years ago, when I first arrived in London as a, an ingenue in my 20s, I was in the National Film Theatre and she was in the toilet next to me and I heard her break wind. I really felt I'd arrived. That's
0: it. That yeah. is. That I, you. That was that it. Right. That was it. It doesn't. <laughs> yes. Has, has thought, anything got I, better than I mean, that since?
5: Nothing's got better. I thought I'm really in with the big boys now. <laughs> I heard Helen the modern to break wind.
0: <laughs> you, you mentioned you mentioned Fleabag uh, there, and, and like mm-hmm. The Office, that's been hugely successful in the states. But other Britcoms, I don't know, Gavin and Stacey, for instance, haven't translated. What what is it about Fleabag that makes the Americans? Grow Grasp it.
5: I think it's actually quite a primal thing. Fleabag is about a woman by herself who can't get a guy. And there's nothing more primal than that in the history of comedy and drama. Gavin and Stacey, though I think it's one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen in my life, it's about two particular countries, you know, England and Wales, that can't really communicate. And they, when they tried it in America, the problem is they tried to do it with different states. And you can't really do that. You know, New York is a different country altogether. And then every state is very different. And then the people within each state are different. So you don't have that kind of black and white contrast that you have in Gavin and Stacey. She came from Wales, he came from England, and never the twain shall meet. You don't have that in America because... Uh, there's such a diversity of cultures and classes and everything all over the whole country. So it would never work.
7: I don't like the idea of my daughter on a blind date all the way in New York.
1: Got not a blind date, mom.
6: But you haven't met. You just don't know. Gavin could be a pedophile. Well,
5: then he wouldn't like me, would he? Well, you have such a young face. I think Fleabag works for one specific reason. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I think it works because it has a posh Brit in it. It's the reason that Downton Abbey work in America. They love Downton Abbey. And one of the things that I've found since living here is that if you want... To, see, I said, here. I never used to talk like that before <laughs> I went to America. Here. I used to say, Here. Yeah, from Wales. You've, when lost I got your, a, yeah. you've
0: lost your Stacey accent, <laughs> yeah. haven't you? You've lost <laughs> well, your Stacey what accent. They want,
5: I, I've lost it all. <laughs> when you're in America, what they want more than anything is to hear an English accent. So when I'm in America, I talk as if I was at Downton Abbey. Whenever I call people up on the phone, I'm like, excuse me, sir, would it be remotely possible? Ma'am, you can have anything you want in that accent. And then I get off the Paddington Express in Britain, I go, What do you mean the train's not working? What do you mean the train's not working? This is dangerous. What kind of third-world country is this? What have you most
0: enjoyed on the shortlist, Jackie?
5: I think that Succession is fantastic. Brian Cox is phenomenal in it. And I think he will win that. I think he'll win the Best Actor category uh, for the TV show. That's amazing.
3: Everything I've done in my life, I've done for my children. I know I've made mistakes, but I've always tried to do the best by them because
0: I love them. Have you thought about the possibility that your children are actually scared of you? They
5: do their drama so well. They throw so much money at it. I think that's incredible. I did like the Hot Priest in Fleabag. You really think they're the next line? What do
0: you believe? Worm food. Why? Why what? Why would you believe in something awful when you can believe in something wonderful?
5: I think what's interesting about the Golden Globes is you never really know. It's a a bit like the Emmys, but the Golden Globes, they talk about it as being a precursor for the Oscars, and it very rarely is. You never know what's going to get best movie. You never know what's going to get best director. And often the movie will win and the director won't. I saw Marriage Story, for example. I hated it. It's a real mishmash of part of its theater, part of its TV, part of its movie, and What's interesting this year with the Golden Globes, Netflix are really cleaning up, but Netflix makes movies for television. And there's a very different way that people make movies for television as opposed to making movies. And when I went to see Marriage Story, I saw it in the big screen and I thought, this isn't a movie. This isn't something like E.T. or Star Wars that was meant for the big screen.
3: He's incredibly neat. She's brave. He's brilliant. He's very competitive.
5: So I'll tell
0: Charlie what's happening and Cassie, you then hand him the envelope.
5: I just get nervous. Oh, can you unserve? What do you mean, like take it back? What you're watching is something that was made for the small screen and boy did it show when they then put it on the big screen.
0: Jackie, thanks so much for that. That's brilliant. And we'll be looking forward to uh, Ricky Gervais presenting it, are we?
5: Oh, well, they're already talking about that. Ricky is being absolutely hilarious. He's already doing the commercials for us over here. He's already hilarious. You know I'm a big Ricky fan. You'll and be, wa- he's just you'll be a- watching, oh, Jackie. Oh.
0: You will definitely be watching. I'll
5: be watching. Well, you can, get me, can you get me a ticket? That's what I want to know. Now that I'm doing this podcast for you, can you get me a ticket?
0: <laughs> right, I think we'll move on then, Jackie. I don't think I'll be getting a ticket. Thank <laughs>
5: okay. All the best. <laughs> lovely to talk to you.
0: And that's it from It's Friday this week. Thanks to all my guests and thank you to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at itsfriday at mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back next Friday and every week with your MailPlus briefings at mailplus.co.uk. But for now, I'm Jim White. Goodbye.